starting with verse 27. This morning we're going to be in Mark 8, starting with verse 27. And last Sunday we got to hear, we have some really cool missionaries, and I think it's cool because they go out to these foreign lands and they come back and tell us what they've experienced, what the Lord is doing over there. Uh, We are separated by thousands of miles and oceans and cultures, but God is the same God no matter where you go. So Pastor Denny shared with us about what's going on in Bahrain, in that culture, and how they're making an impact for the Lord. This morning, the title of today's message is, Who is Jesus and what's it to me? Very succinct, very concise, uh, who is Jesus? Well, People have been asking that question for 2,000 years. Uh, Some think he was a great prophet, a good man, a moral person. Uh, The hipster Jesus has now been remade into some cool coffee-drinking dude that everybody wants to hang out with. So there's a lot of ideas about who Jesus is. And the most important part is, what's it to me? What's it to me? Well, the answer is, what we believe about Jesus, how we rely upon Jesus, how we interact with Jesus will really determine where we will spend eternity. So it's something to all of us, and we're going to look at that where the the Lord speaks to the disciples and says, well, what does the world say that I am? What do you guys say that I am? And based on that, what does discipleship look like? I'm actually going to, I omitted verses 22 through 26. I'm going to put them into next Sunday's uh, service for the sake of time. There's some good stuff in here. I just didn't want to go off too far time-wise. So we're going to jump in with verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he charged them that they should tell no one about him. So again, we're going to kind of break this up into three parts. The first part is, who is Jesus? Question's been asked for 2,000 years. Uh, Serious implications about what we believe about Jesus Christ. Many had it wrong back then, and many have it wrong today. Now, saying, well, some think that you're John the Baptist, well, that was a compliment. Some think that you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Well, that was a compliment. To be any of these guys back then was a compliment, but it doesn't go far enough. What it's doing is it's taking the deity out of, out of God. We can't do that. Jesus was not a mere man. He was fully God, but took the form of a man to accomplish his, his purposes. So my question to you this morning is, who do you say that he is? 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 Think about for the minute. Mull that around in your mind. Many today have the wrong impression. I say this, that we live in the age of information. We've heard that, but I'm also going to tell you that we live in the age of disinformation. The more truth that goes out there, the more Satan will try to throw lies into it to obfuscate, you know, to cause it to be uh, confusing. In Matthew 16, 16, I'm going to use parallel scripture as I always do from each gospel writer's perspective, some elaborated more, some less. Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus says in verse 17, Matthew 16, 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So this morning, if you believe rightly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, fully God, coming in the flesh, then the Father at some point has worked through your life and is working in your life. So I do want you to take heart. When you're tempted to stumble, and even the prayer for the college and military, those leaving the home, when you think that you're alone and you start to remember these things, it gives you comfort. You have the right impression of who Jesus is. The Father has been working in you. He's been drawing you. The Holy Spirit has been convincing you. And if you don't have the right answer, it's okay. Jeremiah 29, 13, seek God with a whole heart. And God says, you'll be found by me, or I'll be found by you. So that's important. If you don't know and you have questions, maybe God is going to reveal himself to you through this message. Be careful of the advice of the crowds. If you had a a really bad disease, would you just go to the crowds? Would you seriously, if you had a really horrible disease, would you go on the internet and say, hey, can a bunch of you give me advice on what to do? And they'll say, well, here's a, a folk medicine kind of thing, or here's this. You wouldn't do that. Would you go to the crowds for investment advice? Hey, every, anybody on the internet, tell me where to invest my money. I mean, we wouldn't do these things. Would you go to the crowd for legal advice? No, you wouldn't. You'd probably end up in jail, right? So then why would we do that for spiritual advice? And, and people do that. They go to a, a party and they're, they're hanging out and they're asking questions about Jesus. Is that really where we want to get our source of information? Here's the thing with Jesus The consequences of spiritual failure are final and absolute. They're eternal. So that's where we should put the most effort in trying to understand what the truth is, seeking the truth. Don't follow the crowd down the wide road off the spiritual cliff. I'm not asking you to swallow everything that I say. Listen, there's some pretty Bibles in there. They have some of red covers, some of blue. It's not theft. Take it home. (laughs) I'm, I'm saying freely. You don't have a Bible? You want to look into the Scripture? Is, is what I'm saying true? Take that home. Keep it. Put your name on the inside cover. It's yours. Right? Do your homework. The first place to look is in God's Word. Amen? The moniker for our uh, Friday night uh, young adults coffee house is called the Berean Room, which comes from Acts 17.11, where the Apostle Paul runs into these Bereans, and he goes, they were more fair-minded. These guys were sharp. I could just picture the Apostle Paul preaching the Old Testament, preaching the Messiah, and the Bereans were like, hold on, hold on. And they're going back through their scrolls. What, what, where'd you say that was in the Psalms? And, and the Apostle Paul said, well, these guys are good. Because they didn't just take what he said. They actually went back to the Scripture to make sure what he was saying was the truth. Do your homework. This isn't a blind faith. And it's what I really like about that movie, too. God is not dead. There's a lot of intellectualism in there. Now, you can't intellectualize somebody into the kingdom. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. But for those people that are really searching, we should know our answers. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should know why we believe that we believe. We don't just say blind faith. That's not the answer. Matthew 16, Jesus says, tell no one. You gotta wonder, sometimes Jesus said things and, and we can kind of speculate and um, use conjecture or um, you know, use some, some good uh, background to understand why he said the things that he said. Well, here was the, the issue. The religious leaders in the Roman government were already poised against Jesus, okay? And most of the crowds and the lay people were pro-Jesus. 
So what happened was you had your pro-Jesus and your anti-Jesus, and Jesus wasn't looking to start a riot. It wasn't his time to die. It wasn't his time to be exalted. So he says, just don't, don't tell them. Um, i got to tell you that Jesus was a polarizing figure. Right? You know, Jesus wasn't a uh, uh, weak-willed, unable to take, to, to, to take control, unable to make a decision type of guy. He was a very take-charge person, and he was polarizing. There was those that really hated him, and there were those that really loved him. And you know what? If we're standing on truth, and we're really doing the right thing, we will have that polarizing effect as well. And, and, you know, we have to ask ourselves, who are the people that I keep company with? Because if you're loved by the children and the vulnerable and the downtrodden and you're hated by carnal Christians or self-righteous believers, you're probably doing the right thing. Hopefully it's not the reverse. And again, that precipitates the question, what type of people do I surround myself with? Very important question. Verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine that? (laughs) Wow. Verse 33. But when he turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's a rebuking contest going on here. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Probably you could hear a pin drop by the other disciples. Probably thinking, I'm glad I didn't say what Peter said. So you got this kind of exchange going on, and let's, let's flesh this out. Let's talk about this. You see, the disciples now knew who Jesus was. And they needed to understand the second point that we're going to cover is, okay, so who is Jesus What did he have to do? What are the implications of knowing who Jesus is? Well, the scripture says in the Old Testament, right, it points to the fact that he had to die on the cross. That's the nuts and bolts to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. How do we get there? By way of the cross. In VBS, we did a little illustration. It was kind of neat. You'll see um, next Sunday the video of it is we put two pieces of tape on the ground really far apart, and we try to have them do like a standing jump to the other side. None of them, of course, could get there. Some of these kids are good jumpers, so I really had to spread it apart. Uh, And then you said, this is the chasm between man and God, you know, a holy, righteous God and sinful man. And then when they all failed, I took blue tape and put it in the shape of a cross, and I had them walk all the way across from one side to the other. So it kind of gave them, even as children, ways that they could understand this whole thing about Jesus Christ. So we do this with children, but we do this with adults, and we all learn differently. But the cross is the nuts and bolts behind John 3.16. However, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's the height of hubris, or the height of pride. Sometimes, though, we do the same thing. Sometimes, you know, we're in prayer, and you ever go into prayer just telling God what you want and not being open to the fact that he'll maybe tweak the plans a little bit or say that that's not good for you, let me give you something else in its stead. So we can, let's not be too hard on the disciples here or Peter because we can be that way as well. And, and it is hubris, it is pride to think that we can tell God what to do or he's always got to bow down to our whims. And there's some denominations that teach that. And it's weird, it's not scriptural. He said to be mindful 
of the things of God and not the things of people. Otherwise, that defaults to being mindful of what Satan's will is. He doesn't want you know, the world to be saved. Now, in our vernacular, we could say, Jesus, Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. We would say, get out of my face or get lost. So you get the impression there. People ask me the questions. There's so many different translations of the Bible. All it does is it's the same Greek and the same Hebrew. It just, you know, depending on which culture and how languages have changed, it's translated from the same originals to how we would speak now. So the King James, a lot of us don't speak that way. And so the new King James came around. Big deal. It's the same Greek and Hebrew words. Not a big deal. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that, that Peter was Satan or somehow he was possessed by Satan. Remember, he just said that the Father was working in his life. But he knew Jesus immediately from what Peter said that Peter entertained a suggestion from the evil one. Remember, Jesus went out and he fasted and he was praying and he, you know, he was out there for 40 days and then he had just been uh, coronated, the Holy Spirit, the Father's voice, and Jesus goes out into the wilderness and then Satan always does that. And I have people tell me this all the time, you know, I just had such a great week with the Lord and, and then Monday morning it all, you know, it all came down on me. Because that's what Satan does. He tries to steal our joy. He tries to undo what God has done. But we can allow the, Satan to do that or we can not allow him. So Peter, in the snap of a finger, listened to the workings of what the Father said in his life. But then he also, and I don't know if this is five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes later, he actually listened to a suggestion from the evil one. But it sounded good. And believers, we need to be careful today and test everything with scripture and prayer because we can unwittingly take a deceptively dressed polemic against God, a a position against God, if we're not in communion with the Father. Unwittingly, I say. Some of you may know Dr. G. Campbell Morgan's writings, but he said this, the man who loves Jesus, or the woman, but shuns God's methods is a stumbling block to God. Let me read that again, because it's contradictory, isn't it? The man, and this was in, P, in this instance with Peter, right? And you know he got it right afterwards. The man who loves Jesus but shuns God's methods is a stumbling block to God. So if we're not careful, we can become a walking contradiction. Isn't that weird? Oh, I love, I do. I love Jesus. I wouldn't be up here if I didn't love Jesus, you know, and all the things that go with it. But, uh, but sometimes I can do things that make me a contradiction. As believers, we have to be careful of that. If it happened to Peter, it can happen to us. And I've got to tell you, for 10 years of being a senior pastor, if you ask me where my greatest opposition has come from, hasn't been from the atheists, hasn't been from the unbelievers. 10 years trying to implement the things of God and God's will, you'd be surprised the opposition I get from people who call themselves believers. Simple stuff. Prayer, the word, how we, we work out the word and counseling and such. Opposition. We have to be careful. I've done a sermon before about how every day we receive different suggestions. God's trying to speak to us every day. It's like the bumper sticker, are you listening? Right? Um, and Satan is trying to subtly cloak lies with, with dressing up in some truth, and he's trying to get that down our throat too. And also our flesh bothers us too. I'm cold, I'm hungry. I'm tired. <laughs> so we have all these suggestions every day, all day long. We have to decide with a matter of our will what we're going to listen to and what we're going to act on. We have to decide every day how we're going to be influenced. Right? 
If we're more on social media and Facebook than in God's word and prayer, if we're only getting the word 35 minutes on a Sunday morning, we become highly susceptible to becoming a Christian contradiction. Technology is awesome. I love it. It takes me a little while to figure stuff out, and my son could figure out better than me, you know, because I'm a little old school too. But it can also be a great distraction to us. I believe believers 100, 200 years ago probably were more closer to God and less distracted because they didn't have all the things that we have. We have to be careful. Think about this. If Jesus listened to Peter, Peter would have perished in hell. And where would we be if God answered all of our carnal prayers? Where would we be? I look, at, I look back over the years and, and I think of some things I really felt strongly about and I prayed about and, and I got upset because God didn't answer my prayers. And then I think, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm thinking, that would have been a disaster. I'm so glad that God doesn't do everything I ask him to do. Right? So thank God for some unanswered prayers. Remember, he answers us and he, he answers our prayers according to his will. God's not going to give us anything that's bad for us. So we have to be careful of that. Western Christianity, unfortunately, is becoming, is becoming more feelings-oriented. I think, I feel, I believe, instead of God's word-oriented. And sometimes a person will come to me, and they're, they're already doing the I think, I feel, and I'm thinking, I've got to answer this situation with Scripture, and, and I know it's, it's going to be some friction. I mean, that's where you, you come here, you're going to get the word. If not, go to Dr. Phil or... Dr. Seuss or Dr. Doolittle, go somewhere, but here you're going to get the word. It's just, it is what it is. There's so many doctors on TV that everybody turns on the TV and they run their lives. We've become a nation that we don't think for ourselves anymore. But if we're going to let somebody dictate our lives, it should be the living God, shouldn't it be? He should be up there as number one. Actually, I like thing one and thing two in Dr. Seuss. I got to tell you, I still like looking at those books, but I shouldn't have just said that. Okay, so let's move on. (laughs) Satan, (laughs) Satan works with strong, passionate feelings. Keep that in mind. Peter loved, think about this from a, let's, let's take the whole plan of God aside. Peter loved his Lord. He built a a man bond with the Lord Jesus Christ over the years. I have no doubt that he was so devoted. In a a heartbeat, you know, Peter was impulsive. He would have given up his life for the Lord Jesus. He tried that in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? He did not want to see Jesus crucified. Now, we could look at that on a TV show and say, oh, that is so awesome. What a great guy. But he was standing in the way of God's will. You ever get that? You ever get a conflict where you feel so emotional or passionate about something, but it's wrong? And, and you start, you, you're flip-flopping, you're being deceived by your own emotions. Be careful of that stuff, right? Because going into that direction, we can enable sin, bad behavior, and manipulation. That's why in Matthew 16, 18, now some denominations teach that uh, Peter was the rock that the church was built on. First of all, it doesn't bear out in the Greek, but let me read the Greek. Let me insert some words here. Imagine the, the rock of the church being built on a man. That's crazy. It was built on Jesus. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros in the Greek. You're a stone. And on this Petra, this rock mass wall, you can't compare the two, little stone that comes off that big wall, I will build my church. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 
he says that Jesus, in Peter's own words, he said that Jesus is the chief capstone or cornerstone. And the spiritual house, we're all lethos, little, little stones built on that foundation. So be careful of false doctrine. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but his end is in destruction. Keep these things in mind. Consider this, because this is going to prepare us for the last few verses. Not a lot left in the sermon, but this quite packed quite a punch. Consider this. Everybody plans, right, to some extent. What do I want to do this weekend? What do I want to do next week? What do I want to do with my life? If you're young, you think, gee, what type of career choice? Can I make money? Who, who am I going to marry? If you're advanced in years, you think, gee, how's my, do I have enough savings in my retirement? Where do I want to live in my golden years? Jesus Christ spent his whole life planning to die. Jesus Christ planned his whole life in his 30s, no less, mind you, knowing that he had to go to be crucified, abused, beaten, tortured, bleeding to death. And I don't even think that's the worst part. I think the worst part is never sinning, hating sin. All of our sins got dumped on him on the cross. This was his plan. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. Sometimes we have to be reminded of that. You know, we're going through a difficult time in life. God loves us. We have to hold on to these words in Scripture. If you believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross, then you have to believe that you're important as an individual, not just collectively as the church. Okay? So put that in perspective. Last few verses. And when he, Jesus, had called the people to him with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Remember, this wasn't just written to the disciples. This is for us as well. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and I, I would say that we're there too, okay, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Imagine that sight. So, what's been established so far? Who is Jesus? I think we got that. Son of the living God. God in the flesh. Two, what did he have to do? Now that we know who he is, he had to go to the cross. And number three, what's it to me? Okay, so here are the choices. There's, and, and the Bible only gives us two choices through everything. Very simple. We don't have D, all the above. It's, it's one or the other. We could either walk away from him at this point, knowing who he is, or we could become his disciple. A disciple is just an apprentice. We follow him. We learn from him. It's nothing fancy. We use discipleship every day, even in our professional lives. Second, second idea, the, the dichotomy is we could either be part of the crowd, and there's a lot of people in the crowd that had a favorable opinion of Jesus, but they weren't followers. We could be a part of the crowd, or we could be his disciples. We could be fond of him. A lot of people today are fond of Jesus. He's probably a good man, a prophet, or we could love him. There's no in-between. And we have that same difficulty in our culture today. A lot of fondness, a lot of fondness in the church, but we really need to love Jesus, and there's a big difference. Let me read 34 again. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. It all starts with desire, and desire starts in the heart. The fire that burns in the heart, that fire of desire. Do we have a desire for the Lord? Or are there other things in the world, in our lives, that are crowding out the love of Jesus? Remember the parable of the soils, right? All the crowding that was going on in some of those hearts. Now, the fire of desire of the heart will lead to action. God doesn't want lip service from us, not platitudes and and nice words that we say to other believers. He wants action. So what's the action? Number one, to deny ourselves. That is very hard, and I'm going to give this to you and me because I live in this culture too. I don't live in a bubble. In this culture of plenty, in this culture of indulgence, it's very hard to deny ourselves because the world is, is bombarding us with these signals and these images to indulge, indulge, indulge. If it feels good, do it. And the Bible is saying, deny yourself. This is very, very hard for Western Christians to engage in. I got to tell you, some Christians don't deny themselves anything. They refuse to. And it shows. It shows in their commitment to the Lord. Some people leave good Bible-believing churches because they hear the word change and commitment too much. They don't like those words either. You know, God tells us to deny ourselves. Why? Not to hurt us, not to play with us and toy with us like marionettes. He does it so that he can work in our lives, so that our will isn't trying to overtake his will. And remember, he's given us free will. We don't have to listen to him. So this is a conflict that goes on in our souls. It's really that we, we, we have to empty ourselves of ourselves for him to work in our lives. There's a lot of good articles that I actually have a few in my office about indulgence and, uh, in the Western church that's led to a dysfunctional idea towards the church where we go and we become consumers. Like we go to a church and we say, well, what can I get here? Well, what's in it for me? And we, we start to look at the place and how it can minister to me when, when we should be going somewhere to decide how we can be a part of the church as, as 1 Corinthians 12. Many of you know I'm a beekeeper, and I just, I just went in my hives the other day too, and it's just, without fail, every time I lift up the cover and look at them all, they're all working together, always. I never see one bee hanging out in the corner, smoking a cigarette with his feet up. <laughs> ah, You're working too hard. You're not going to live very long. Never happens. I've never seen it. You know, it's amazing how God used bugs, insects, to teach us things. They have what's, and I've heard this term before, and I'm going to steal it, this collective consciousness, the bees. They all work together to keep them alive. Well, when the church starts looking at each other, we look at each other and we're individualistic, the church dies. And there's churches all around us closing their doors for that very reason. You know, how can I be a part of what God is doing here? How can I I edify? How can I deny myself and have the Lord use my spiritual gifts? How can I be in tune to the Holy Spirit? That's the proper attitude towards the church. Now we're instructed. (laughs) This gets pretty... I've got to tell you, and I'm just going to warn you, that this teaching, there are a lot of pulpits that will not teach this. They'll put all the the nice stuff in there, all the sweet stuff. This is just... The page is turned for the next miracle. This is the type of teaching that's not designed or that doesn't fill football stadiums. This is not the type of teaching that will grow a church in a few months and, and you know, at 100% growth. And you know what? This teaching was never designed to do that. This teaching is for us to, listen, we've had some awesome teachings here lifting us up. This one is introspective. Are we real believers 
or were we make-believers? And this is what this teaching is designed to do. So the next thing Jesus instructs us to do is to take up our cross and follow him. In Luke 9, he adds more depth to it, and that Jesus said, take up your cross daily. So in case we were confused about that, well, one of these days, I'll take up my cross. Luke 9, Jesus says, take it up daily. So what does this all mean? Well, taking up your cross in the Roman Empire, which is when the backdrop of when this was written, the context, was an attitude of a man or a woman going to death row. You were really literally giving up your life. You had no choice, right? And the state was going to take your life. So very quickly, you would realize that your whole life is now coming to a screeching halt. Just, I'm going to turn the page a little bit. How many of you have ever heard of, raise your hand, Sophie Scholl? Sophie Scholl? Oh, you're in for a treat then. (laughs) Sophie Scholl, a lot of people don't know who she was. She was a 22-year-old living in Nazi Germany. And she had a, uh, a movement that was nonviolent, but that used, you know, made pamphlets and stuff, trying to t- explain to people how they should re- resist the Nazi movement and how it was barbaric and inhumane. She did this, she quoted Jesus a lot, was because she had a very strong Christian faith, 22 years old. When the Nazis caught her, she didn't deny it. She continued to tell them what she believed, how strongly she believed, and they took her life. They killed her. They killed her. And this is what she said before she was executed. She, kept, she said, how can, think about this. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? She saw the apathy in Nazi Germany among the intelligentsia. They started coming for different groups and everybody was figuring out, well, I hope they don't come for me next. I'm just going to just, you know, be oblivious to it. Think about us as believers, Right? She said, such a fine sunny day and I have to go, meaning she was going to perish. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Pretty powerful for a 22-year-old girl who could have looked the other way. She had her whole life ahead of her and she chose this course in life. Pretty impressive. Many of us in this room will not face that. Probably not. We don't live in Nazi Germany. Many of us you know, don't have the, aren't under the conditions that are uh, Christians in Iraq and Syria are under. Horrible conditions, horrific. All God's asking for us is to give him our temporal life. Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? I, I really want your input. I don't want to just, well, I'm a Christian now, I'm going to do whatever I want, and at the end I'm just going to get a, a ticket to the big seat in heaven up there somewhere. Right? We don't, we're not being faced, we're not having guns put to our head telling us uh, to deny our faith or be killed. At the very least, we could give God our lives and not be so self-directed. Warren Wiersbe said it's an attitude of three things. Surrender, that's hard to do. Surrender your free will. Surrender your self-directed life. Identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. And three, to be obedient, often the most difficult. Again, it's not to harm us, but it's to make us better. Verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Losing our lives versus trying to hold on to it. There's an element here of sacrifice. Sacrifice. As Christians, have we sacrificed to walk this road with the Lord? Anything? We have to ask ourselves, My Lord has given up so much for me. Have I really given up anything in my walk with the Lord? 
How long has it been? Have we given anything up? Or do we try to hold on to everything pre-cross? And that happens. We come to the cross. We have relationships. We have habits. Some of them are bad habits. We have lifestyles. We have our routines. We come to the cross. We don't want to give up anything, but we want to follow the Lord. That's very difficult because repent means to change direction. By virtue of becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus and following him, we have to leave some things behind. And some of us are holding on to things that we shouldn't be holding on to. I mean, at the very least, we could give up the bad things. And the Lord may also ask us to give, us, uh, give up other things to follow him. You've heard Pastor Denny last Sunday. He misses his grandchildren. He's tearing up when he talked about it. That was one of the, the prices that he paid to follow the Lord. And when he comes home, he just wants to spend as much time or he comes to the United States with his grandchildren as possible. He misses them. But he's torn. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. He wanted to be with the believers, but he wanted to go and be with the Lord at the same time. He was torn. Pastor Denny was torn. He wanted to be with his grandchildren, but he also wanted to go back to Bahrain where God is using him in a mighty way in the Arabian Peninsula. Pretty, uh, it, it's tough. Some have this crazy idea that it's only pastors and missionaries that have to sacrifice. This letter was not written. This was not written to pastors and missionaries. It was written to all believers. And if we're in ministry and we're compensated very well and you see some of these superstar ministries, that doesn't count either because there's worldly compensation involved in that. 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is for us not to be focused on, I want it all. Some have the attitude, I want it all. When we become Christians, that shouldn't be our attitude. Lord, what is it that you want me to have? Again, this is not going to fill any football stadiums anytime soon. Not designed to. In 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, sometimes people get confused, and I love painting myself into a corner so I can explain it. You know, the Bible says, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. What gives? The context. There's a, a semantic range of the word world, cosmos, that uh, you can find different things depending on the context that it was using. When it says God so loved the world, God so loved sinners. God so loved rebellious sinners, poised against them. He wants to bring them all in like prodigal children. When it says do not love the world or the things of the world, that means really the materialistic, the hedonistic, the attitude that's poised against God. We're to love sinners, but we're not to be playing in their playground. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. So he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, by default, I added that, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have both. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You ever talk to somebody and they say to you, oh, you're a Christian. Hey, what's going on in the Middle East? You ever, you ever wonder what's going on in this country, going into debt the way we are, the, the insanity that's going on across our seas? Even somebody who doesn't know the Lord, they think if something doesn't change, this world's going to implode. How can we exist as a human race? We can't. So when the Bible says that the world is passing away, amen to that, God gives us insight into what he's going to do. There's going to be a different dispensation. He's, going to, he's not going to let us destroy the whole world. He's going to at some point intervene. In Luke 9.25, it 
He says, for what advantage is it to a man to gain the whole world, but he himself is destroyed or lost? How important is each person's soul? Extremely important. That God even says that the world, the materialistic world, doesn't compare to one person's soul. So think about that again when you're alone or you think you're alone uh, and you're maybe warring with some people or whatever the case may be. You're feeling the loneliest you've ever felt. Think about this. Your soul is extremely important to him because he made you. And God, it was a, a little kind of poster of a little kid. You know, was, I know I'm important because God doesn't make junk. He doesn't make junk. He made us. We're precious. We're eternal. So before we get to the last point, what are we giving God? What are we giving God? Are we giving him our best? Or are we giving God our leftovers? Do we treat our pets better than we treat the Lord in, in what we give our pets? It's, it's a legitimate question. We just covered in 2 Samuel 24, 24, when King David went to Aruna to buy uh, the threshing floor so he could worship God and he could offer sacrifices. And Aruna sees the king coming with his entourage. Boy, it was good to be the king back then. And he says, oh, you could have it for free. All of it, take it. And David said, no, I insist on paying for this because I will not sacrifice to my God something that costs me nothing. There's a, it doesn't even matter how much he paid. This is the attitude that we have to have. Oh, what are we giving God? Are we giving him our leftovers or are we giving him our best? It's the only question that we can answer. Verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow. Wow. And let me just encourage you, if you're a new believer, you go through stages. When I was a new believer, being in law enforcement, that was tough because, you know, it's just that type of field. And I wouldn't bring my Bible into work, and it just didn't last long. Now it's, forget about it, you can't shut me up. But I went through, it's a fear stage. You want to fit in with your peers, and you've got this now internal struggle. You know, you have this relationship with God. You know it's right, but there are forces on the outside that may be antagonistic to what you're doing. And especially to young people going out into, you know, leaving the home, leaving your church, leaving your comfort zones, and going out into the world, there's going to be a struggle. But it's always right to honor the Lord. It's always right not to be ashamed of the Lord. Gee, he went to the cross and died for my sins. How could I be ashamed of him? Remember, Christians today in the Middle East, they are paying the ultimate price for this. You, the listener, are at a crossroads. If you're maybe new to the church, you've never heard this before, the road just forked. You can't go straight anymore. You've either got to go one way or you've got to go the other way. You either have to take the road that the crowd is taking, the wide road that leads to destruction, or you need to go on the other road. And when you look at the other road, not a lot of people on that road. A lot of my friends and family aren't on that road. Look at that road. They're all partying, having a good time. That looks like a lot. I know a lot of people over there. It's the truth. You have to make a decision which road you want to go down. You, are, you cannot go straight anymore. There's nothing on the road to straight. You either follow the crowd or what a lot of other people are doing that you know or you devote your life wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's been said that Satan promises us glory here, but in the end we suffer humility and agony. The Lord promises us suffer and agony at times, but eventually we're in glory for eternity. You know, bank robbers know eventually they're going to get caught. I've talked to some bank robbers, people that rob stuff. They know eventually they're going to get caught by the long arm of the law. But it's instant gratification. They get a few thousand dollars here, get a few bucks here. The scammers do the same thing. They know eventually they're going to get nailed. But they live it up for a short period of time, and they're okay doing that. You've got to give them credit. There's an honesty there. I love that. I love honesty. We can't have that mentality, though. We are here for a short amount of time. Don't have the bank robber mentality. Eternity is a long, long time. It's much longer than we'll ever live on this earth. It goes on forever. And it's glory. And it's rejoicing. And there's angels. And there's living creatures. And there's revelation. And there's the throne room of heaven. It's all, all, all for all eternity. It's going to be so exciting. That's the road we need to take. We have to make a decision. Are we earthbound believers? Getting caught up in the Christian culture? If you're a new believer, find somebody who's really solid in the Lord and loves the Lord. Don't hang out with carnal believers. It's only going to hurt and stunt your growth. Our rewards will not necessarily be here. Some of them will. And, you know, the whole thing with VBS. I mean, I know, I know adults in their 40s, 50s, 60s that remember VBS and what they were taught. But we, when we do VBS and we teach the kids, we won't, may never see those results for decades. But I know we'll see them in the kingdom. A lot of what we do here, Jesus said, is to lay up treasures. We make investments. They're spiritual investments. And a lot of it, we can't, can't cash it. <laughs> we can't take it out now because it's not that, that dispensation. But one day, it's gonna be, we're going to see all the people we've affected, all the kids that were changed as they became adults because of EBS. We're going to see a lot of things happen in the kingdom. It's going to be very exciting. I just want to encourage you not to be an earthbound Christian. 1 Corinthians 3 says that a lot of the works that believers do will be burned up in the judgment. The stuff that just was stuff for here and didn't really have any eternal value. I'll just leave you with this. You're at a crossroads. Can't go straight. Narrow path or the wide path? Wide path, a lot of partying going on on that path, leading to destruction. The narrow path, not many are on it, not many find it, but it leads to everlasting life. If we're going to become Christians and call ourselves Christians, let's do it all the way. Let's not half-heart it. Let's pray.